If the idea takes you a little getting used to, think of how it feels for John Hodgman, coming to terms with his bearded and middle-aging self and writing it all down in a book. For many years now, Hodgman has been his characters, a Daily Show fixture as a resident expert and deranged millionaire, he wrote a trilogy of factlets, irrelevancies, elevated claptrap, and intimidating charts, and as Judge John Hodgman, dispenses deadpan justice by print and by podcast. His new book is the nonfiction Vacation Land. That's the one-word pitch that Maine puts on its license plates, and Hodgman, who spends part of his year there, begs to differ. The state's motto is, Dirigo, I guide. And in the book, he is a tour guide to his own life, urban and rural, past and present. And in our conversation at the Los Angeles Times Ideas Exchange, Hodgman's friend Nick Offerman, actor, author, and mighty woodsman, puts in a cameo appearance. The last time you and I talked was about the last book in your trilogy, that is all. Yes. Fake facts. Now, this book is a, a truer, at least I'll say truer if not true. It is, is absolutely true. Okay, absolutely Everything about true. it is true. But was the competition just too much in the fact, fake facts department you had to leave? Yeah, the joke is I, I wanted to stop doing fake facts because now everyone's doing it. I need to do something cooler. I had written three books of invented trivia and false history that, that was really a, a true and honest, even though it was fake, it was a true and honest expression of my preoccupation with weird history and forgotten history. But by the time the third one came out, I sort of knew that I didn't want to, I didn't have any more of those jokes to make. What do I do next? And I started performing at a small venue called Union Hall in Brooklyn, um, just to find out what was on my mind and what came out was uh, more and more of these like very true and sincere stories that I had previously hidden away about my own life as a real human being with a wife and two human children, uh, a white male monster staring down the second half of his life. Doing the onstage prep work for vacation, it sounds like therapy standing up. Yeah, well the best part about it was that I didn't pay for it, I was paid for it. I, it was unfair that I asked these audiences to pay for my therapy and also probably anti-therapeutic that I was drinking through most of it. Uh, but it was, you know, a, an, a deadline, and especially the very hard deadline of an audience showing up at a certain time is a, you know, panic is a great catalyst for creativity. And when you don't think that you have anything left, uh, creatively setting a hard deadline for yourself, your brain will produce for you what it is it's thinking about. And um, it's often surprising. And in that sense, there, it's very similar to therapy. When you're sitting in front of a, a silent person uh, who is waiting for you to speak what is on your mind, you have to come up with something. Your trilogy, though, was cousin. a major contribution to American culture, which thrives wait, on wait, fake facts. Hang on, you guys. I appreciate that laugh, but you covered up something very important that Pat Morrison was saying. Say that thing again about what a great uh, contribution your, to American culture I am. The contribution of your trilogy, yes. not unlike, say, John Dos Passos, to American culture. You got that part, okay? Yeah, no, I like right. that, yeah. <laughs> the Sweet John Dos Passos reference. <laughs> Go on. How important fake facts are to American culture? The, the whole joke of them was born out of the fact that in the middle of the last decade, I was watching lots of people on television cable news had to fill up hours and hours and hours of empty time. 
And so uh, uh, people were showing up and presenting themselves as experts in something, and there was no vetting of their expertise at all. So all of a sudden, between cable television and the internet, expertise was a very debased coin. I mean, I don't ever try, try to do something for the sake of social commentary, but that's what I was reacting to at the time. Now, that was a, very, that was a, a much earlier time in our history. Uh, there was still a sense that there was some baseline truth that we could all adhere to. That now has been completely eroded, which is so upsetting to me that I kind of felt like I don't even want to trade in an imitation of fake facts anymore. I'd rather, I, I feel like this is a time where we all just have to sort of look at each other sincerely and say, this is who I am, uh, this is who you are, let's try to understand each other and get rid of all this garbage. After 9-11, we talked about the death of irony. Now we have the death of satire because it's so hard to satirize anything, isn't it? Well, I'm glad it's not my job to go on a daily show anymore <laughs> to, to make fun of the political climate because it's, every day I wake up in despair. It's not fun. Um, now, Trevor and the team of The Daily Show, uh, Stephen over at the, the Late Show and, and, and Seth, and they're rising to the, to the demands of the job in an, in an inspiring way. But I'm glad I don't have to do it. John, the reason I called you here today... Well, I'm, I'm here every day. It's my show, so I'm here. <laughs> it's not like you, you... Please, John, this is hard enough without your blubbering. <laughs> I have something to say. I've been appearing on this show for almost 10 years now, and this show doesn't deserve an even slightly restless, deranged billionaire. <laughs> what? And so I'm, I'm moving on. Really? I mean, the deranged millionaire character that was created for The Daily Show by, by me in 2011 was a direct response to Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump, at that time, was going on all the cable news channels peddling uh, a conspiracy that uh, then-President Barack Obama was not born in the United States. Uh, and, but the fact that this guy could wander, essentially wander onto a news set to spill garbage because he was a brand, because he was a rich white man whose brand was being a rich white man, uh, to me was this laughable, you know, satirizable thing. And that's how the deranged millionaire got started. What I didn't appreciate was, A, this was going to be bad for me because it would lock me into essentially uh, financial comedy, which the two things don't really go together, <laughs> and I don't know how to do subtraction. So I, And then also my... my style of humor, such as it is, would be to take uh, reality and then extrapolate it to its most absurd extreme. Well, Donald Trump doesn't need my help in that regard. No comedy I could come up with could ever compete with the weird uh, long-form improv that Donald Trump <laughs> was and continues to do. And so, you know, I got out as soon as I could and started talking about real life, and such as I experience it. We meet you as, let's see... A romantic loner in adolescence with a manual typewriter and a fern, someone who went to the cinema in the middle of the day and discovered Tim Burton. I was a 13-year-old weird-only child who was so terrified of sexual adolescence that I decided that I was going to skip it and become the 39-year-old sexless bachelor that I felt <laughs> destined to become. And so I wore a Doctor Who scarf and a fedora, and I would go out to art movies in the middle of the day by myself. I watched a short movie called Vincent by a young director named Tim Burton, and I said, that guy is going somewhere. And no one heard me because I was alone. <laughs> in our 20s, 
you know, we, we spend a lot of time and energy convincing ourselves and hopefully others that we are interesting and unprecedented in our lives and our, and our, um, our thoughts. And we do this largely by buying things and stealing things. We buy clothes and music and attitudes and we, we steal poses and ideas and gestures to create an adornment for ourselves, which is a kind of costume. And then by the 30s, that gets tiresome. Uh, and we we'll let a little of that fall away, but our 30s are usually spent pretending that we're still in our 20s. But then by our 40s, or at least for me, it was sort of in my early 40s that I realized n n I, I cannot... I cannot pretend anymore that I am connected to that person that I once was. This is who I am now. And that's when I found myself uh, in a cocktail party in Maine with a bunch of retirees drinking a jelly jar full of gin that someone called a martini. And I was like, you know what? I like this. <laughs> this is who I am now. <laughs> where we reach a point where it doesn't seem, we feel done. There's, there's, there, there seems a moment where we can't go on further and yet there is time left to us, and how do we fill it? And that, uh, that's the white privileged mortality comedy of John Hodgman in a nutshell. Uh, you know, and, and that's what Vacation Land is about to some degree. Facial hair was also a way of manifesting these transitions. I mean, yeah. you never went full Rutherford B. Hayes, but... Oh, well, I couldn't do a full Rutherford B. Hayes. What you're seeing is the greatest expression of the uh, follicular talent that I have. <laughs> It's a terrible, ugly beard. For those of you listening on Pat Morrison's podcast later, let me describe it for you. There, it comes to a sort of sharp, villainous point on my chin, but my, my, my mustache refuses to meet my beard out of spite. Uh, there are weird bald patches on either side. My sideburns look like salt and pepper ants crawling up and down my face. None of it is symmetrical in any way. Uh, but I felt compelled to grow it because men feel, uh, well, men, men who can grow beards and even those who can't feel compelled to try because they want to see what comes out of their face. They want to know what secret man lives inside of them that they didn't know before, especially as they're getting older. Uh, they want to know, like, who is this bearded sage who's going to lead me into this new, this new uh, chapter in my life? We'll talk a little more about how you sort of inhabit two worlds, the world of Park Slope in Brooklyn, where, as you say, you can get into trouble for asking for the wrong kind of hummus. So you don't seem entirely hummus a creature... Hummus is, is highly politicized. <laughs> ...that. But also you live in Maine in a place that has pond scum and raccoons and septic tanks that run your life. But you don't seem to be quite of each one entirely. No, I've never felt comfortable in any world that I inhabit. <laughs> I mean, the, the book is, the book is uh, essentially premised on the idea that these are my wanderings as a, a weird, asthmatic, nerdy, citified, only child grown larger into parts of, of rural New England where I don't exactly belong and don't really know how to handle myself and all kinds of uh, hilarious hijinks ensue. Um, but it is also about coming to terms with uh, changes in my life. The first half of the book is talking about rural Western Massachusetts where I, de I deployed a lot of my youth. Uh, and now more recently, I've, you know, I've transitioned into the, the painful beaches of coastal Maine, which is not my world at all. It is, it is my wife's world. 
and that's the place where if she has told me that I will, I will accept my death and I accept that fate. Uh, and I spend a lot of time in Maine with her now. Maine is called Vacation Land, which is a cruel joke. The nickname should be Maine, putting the spite in hospitality since 1820. <laughs> Against anyone who seeks vacation, they might accidentally go to Maine, not knowing that the oceans are made of hate and want to kill you, and that the beaches are made of rocks and knives. I'm Ron Swanson. She's here. Who's here? My ex-wife, Tammy, too. I can smell the sulfur coming off her cloven hooves. Here is our friend Nick Offerman. Nick, are you available to... Good evening. Hi, Nick. How are you? I am great, thank you. Good evening, Pat. Hello, Nick. John said you did hand pulp all of the paper for his book. Is that true? I w all is, might be a generous estimation. Uh, You've destroyed some trees in your time. I have, yeah. I do, uh, I pulp by foot. And, um, like grapes? Like grapes. Mm. I am personally very upset that, that Nick has not come to visit me in Maine because it is, a, a, I think, a landscape that would suit you. Uh, it has everything. I, I, I can put up no argument. It's the land of woodworking and boat building and, uh, and painful beaches. That's right, at least on, uh, at least on the coast. Mm -hmm. The interior, it's more the land of drinking coffee brandy and going to sleep early. <laughs> but That happens to be my bag. <laughs> <laughs> then all of Maine is for you. <laughs> so here's John, who, who did not know what a septic tank or a propane tank was. And you're, you're the master of the ads and the all and all of those ob obscure things. Master so of the ads? That's fantastic, that Pat is. Morrison. <laughs> This looks like a job for the master of the ads. Ads master? Ads master? Ads sure. master? <laughs> <laughs> Nick, you actually do need to go. I do. I, I, have, a, uh, I have a date. <laughs> uh, well, th we, will, we will let you go, but thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. We're gonna you have, have to, to be on the west side by midnight, so you have to leave. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. Thank you very much, Nick. It was great thank to you, see Nick. you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're in for a treat. Ladies and gentlemen, Nick Offerman. I love you. And Ladies and gentlemen, Pat Morrison. And the musical stylings of Mr. John Hodgman. Road runner, road runner. Going faster miles an hour. Pat Morrison asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's engineered by Tim French and Todd G. Levin and edited by Levin. The audio moments are from The Daily Show on Comedy Central, from TEDx Midwest, from Parks and Recreation on NBC, and The State Song of Maine from YouTube. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and never miss a podcast. I'm in love with modern moonlight Route 128 when it's dark outside I'm in love with Massachusetts I'm in love with my radio on Helps me to not be so lonely late at night Helps me to not feel so alone late at night Don't feel so bad now I'm in the car Don't feel so alone I got my radio on I'm the roadrunner That's right